This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. All right, let's talk about other conflicts that also need international attention. And as we say this, we are in no way, please, diminishing what has transpired. We are not saying, oh, you're paying more attention to the Gaza-Israel issue. What? No, no. Everything that has transpired in the last few weeks is justified from a diplomatic and international relations point of view, especially when we're dealing with uh, powers that hold such geopolitical, strategic importance in world affairs. It's very important for us to really start raising uh, the specter of uh, consistency in the application of law and uh, morality in how these laws are imbibed uh, and how these laws are used as instruments within um, multilateral fora uh, like the UN. So all of what's happened is correct. However, there has been a school of thought that says, could we also, also find a way to not forget the suffering in Sudan, in the DRC, uh, in the Tigray province of Ethiopia, and in any other internecine conflicts in the world, in northern uh, Nigeria, in the Sahel, and anywhere else in the world. Can we also remind the world of atrocities there, injustices there, and uh, direct resources there? And in the case of the DRC, shortly after an election, uh, we've also heard that the United Nations has announced that in 2024, this year, by the end of this year, they hope that their peacekeeping um, force, I don't think that's quite the right word, they're, anyway, their peacekeeping um, endeavours will be scaled down in eastern Congo, which remains uh, quite a volatile region. But Monuac will be scaling down. And some people have said perhaps the timing is not quite right. So it's just about saying to the world, lest we forget. And we're joined by Sanusha Naidu, who's a political analyst and senior research associate at the Institute for Global Dialogue. It's always great speaking to you, Sanusha. Good morning and Happy New Year. Ah, it's always a pleasure to be on the show. Good morning to you, Lerato. All the best for 2024. Hope it's a better year for many of us. Absolutely. Okay, so you heard my preamble. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if I've missed anything. So this is not in any way even beginning to measure um, what's transpired at the ICJ and whether or not countries are more interested in that conflict or the next. I think actually you often do need a conflict of that magnitude um, Mm -hmm. to remind the world of its morals and its ethics. And now that the world is having to recalibrate, let's talk about other places we should not forget about. So please enter the conversation. I mean, I completely agree with your characterization of where we are right now and of course raising the question about how do we deal with conflict, how do we deal with peace and stability, and more importantly, how do we actually address the the root causes of what acts as, as incubators of conflict and become catalysts for uh, conflict deepening. And I think you're right in many ways to say that what has happened at the ICJ does not detract from what this, uh, the, the, the argument on both sides were about, and, and, a, and a conflict that has been deepening 
in, in manners that have become much more complex than before. And in the case of Africa, I think when you look at Africa and you look at the, the, the kind of benchmark of conflict in Africa, you see conflict evolving. So it starts off very much around tensions, whether it's internal or intrastate conflict, it morphs into interstate conflict, and then it starts to come back to questions of intrastate conflict, but with state parties or actors, both state and non-state actors, that have actually transcended boundaries. So the nature of conflict in Africa, like most places in the world, has become trans transnational. Mm. It has become trans. Uh, it's, it's moved beyond the boundaries. Uh, so what happens behind the border becomes very much relevant and challenges the stability mm. of the of borders. And of course, we go back to the questions of, you know, we don't want to become um, overly myopic about certain conflicts that need attention and others that don't. But I think what we need is a grounding of realities that exist mm. in, 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 in Africa and elsewhere. You spoke about Africa and you spoke about the DRC and you spoke about the UN decision to... Um, for the, for, Scale for down, Monesco. yeah. I think I was yeah, just uncomfortable with the, the word force. Yeah, but, yeah. For, the, for the Monesco uh, peacekeeping mm. force to essentially move uh, and, and scale down and eventually I think it'll if you want to call it within inverted commas, close shop, in a way, in the DRC. Mm -hmm. And you have to look at how this came about, you know, what, what, what happened there. And, you know, some reports suggest that it was the decision taken at the UN Security Council, it was brought by France and, and so forth. And I think these are challenges as well, because it also raises challenges for, for governments in Africa. This is a big year in Africa for elections. But will these elections sustain itself? Because ballot as a, a democracy as the ballot box is also democracy of how do you actually uh, address and mitigate the risk of, of of conflict that currently exists and new potential conflicts that have the have the ability to destabilize and undermine the 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 the, the, the democratic process and you just look at the drc now after their election and of course the challenges that opposition parties brought to the incumbent president, but also the challenges of how this actually creates stability. You've also spoken about Sudan and, and South Sudan, in particular, the elections that are going to happen in South Sudan this year. But also there's another brewing tension in the, in, in the Horn of Africa, the East African region, in West Africa, in Southern Africa, even within the context of, 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 of the North African region as well. And these are having cross-border spillover effects. Um, just the other day, uh, was it yesterday or the day before, I think it was Tanzania and I'm not sure if it was Kenya. They're having a dispute over their over their their, their 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 airspace, and that's another type of conflict. So you know the problem here is that we tend to we tend to super focus on one, but we don't really resolve others. Yeah. Okay. So you've said a few things here, and I just want clarity. So you say that. In the modern day, the nature of conflict is also changing, where we see it being transnational in terms of uh, borders and we see non-state actors. So this has also been one of the complexities of the Hamas-Israel issue, is that Israel is an official sovereign state and therefore member of the United Nations. Because Palestine is not yet an official country, hence negotiations for a two-state solution, because Palestine technically is not a country as, rep as recognized by sovereign laws, it's a territory, Hamas then becomes a non-state actor. Even though they were elected to run Gaza, they are not technically a government 
of a state. And that's where the thing gets really tricky because you've got a legitimate state on the one side and you've got a non-state on the other side and they're embroiled in a conflict. That's why Hamas can't take its issues to the UN. Similar things are also happening in parts of the Sahel. So please give us an understanding. Okay. So I want to go back to my political science 101. Yes. And look at the five characteristics that make up the definition of a sovereign of a sovereign state. It has to have borders. Uh, it has to have internal legitimacy, which is recognition by people within that 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 territorial space that recognizes the authority that's in power. It has to have external sovereignty, which is recognition that legitimacy from the from external actors, outside actors. It has to have defined nation, and of course, it has to have a recognized uh, um, what you call this um, government. And, and if you go back to the, the, the very nature of the international system of statehood, it's very much the Westphalian model. You know, after the 30-year war between Sparta and, and, and um, Athens, you, know, you had the, the, the Treaty of Westphalia. I mean, you kind of realize that that is the modern state. And that's the definition we use in order to define who has statehood and who does not have statehood. Now, it's fascinating because... In the case of Taiwan, and I want to bring Taiwan in here because I think it's a very important dimension as well on the recognition of statehood, that Taiwan is, in the definition of statehood, is, is, is also, it's a state but not a state, if that makes sense. It's a contradictory of terms because it is a breakaway Republican nationalist that left the, the, the mainland uh, I, I the mainland in, in the 1920, uh, 1940s and mm-hmm. created a parallel state on Taiwan. And that is now a big issue for China because China believes in the one China policy and everybody recognizes there's just one China and that's the People's Republic of China and not Taiwan, which is the Republic of China. Mm-hmm. Up until the early 70s, Taiwan was the seat on the, as a permanent security member, as a member of the, the Permanent Security Council until China challenged it and of course that had to be changed. Yeah. But interestingly enough, the recognition of sovereignty externally is not necessarily one that everybody accedes to, including the U.S. in terms of the finer points that it makes about how close it comes to supporting Taiwan, but just stays outside of that of those those dynamics around mm. formally recognizing Taiwan. And I think that's a fascinating example because right now the elections that took place over the weekend and where the um, the ruling party, the, DD, the DPP, came back into power, and it's a and it's a it's a it's a party that the Democratic People's Party in Taiwan is very much not aligned to Beijing, okay. and so there's tensions around whether Be- uh, Beijing will see this as provocation, and perhaps there may be some kind of uh, a military uh, acquisition of mm. Taiwan, and there'll be a military conflict. And, and, and up until October 7th, I think, and up until the focus now on Gaza and Israel and what's going on, the, the tensions around Taiwan being the kind of catalyst for a, for a major conflict in the, in, mm-hmm. in the Asia-Pacific was very real. It doesn't really mean that it dissipates, but it's still there. But yeah. the question of recognition of statehood is very much based on borders and boundaries, which are sometimes mm-hmm. very artificial. So mm-hmm. if you look at uh, you know the reason why South Sudan split and we have mm-hmm. now South uh, we have Sudan and we have South Sudan is partly because of the question in which how resources played a role in that, but yeah. also the fact is 
it doesn't really make sense to create more states because more states means more added burdens of resources, but it also means challenges around questions right. of identity, national identity. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I think just to circle back to your point about the strictures of what defines sovereignty and statehood mm-hmm. is increasingly also being challenged in the boundaries and the definition okay. of the Westphalian model, which in, in, essentially, in my opinion, I think they, I'm going to cause a bit of a uh, um, um, eyebrows raise, being raised mm-hmm. here, to say that the model doesn't exist to recognize what statehood is. Okay. Oh, well, now we've dealt with the definitions. Let's go back to the uh, topic at hand, which is whether we're talking state actors in terms of sovereign states or contestation for the legitimacy of that states when militia group emerge or whether it's new states that are struggling to get their footing. The truth is in the context of all of these, 40 million people in Africa currently have been displaced because of the tensions that exist, whether we're talking uh, the Sahel and contestation in northern Mali or we are talking Tigray province, just a very volatile province inside greater Ethiopia, where the Tigrenya say that actually we see ourselves as uh, legitimate rulers of the country and have been denied it. Or maybe we should have our own country, Somaliland. Um, Mm -hmm. Or we're talking about the two Sudans. So whatever those technicalities, the truth is people on the ground are are suffering. And so let's start off with Sudan. 3.4 million uh, people forcibly displaced out of a population of 7.3 million. And it all started when the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces locked horns. Uh, and that act, and that was preceded by the deposition of Omar al-Bashir. So just talk to us what's going on and why this conflict has led to mass displacement, violence, and women on social media in the Sudan are saying they fear for their lives. There seems to be a particular targeting of women and um, sexual violence being used as an instrument of war. So let me talk about the sexual violence part, because I think it's a very, very important point you raise about how sexual violence has become an instrument of, of war, but it also has become an instrument in refugee camps where these refugee camps where major, uh, ma- the major uh, uh, stakeholders or the major people that are in refugee camps are women and children. And the, the, the distribution of resources, particularly aid or development or um, resources such as uh, food, parcels, etc., have also become subjected to internal power struggles and who controls those camps. So that's another dynamic that needs to be looked at. The issue of Sudan and the question of uh, the conflict itself, as you rightly point out, goes back to that whole point around al-Bashir. I'm not an expert on the Horn of Africa, so I'm going to mm. make a bit of a broad generalization. Mm. But I think if you get an expert, they'll be able to give you the, the, the finer nuances of it. But it comes back to power as well. It comes back to the relationship that um, Khartoum had with, South, uh, with, with the south of the country. And of course, the other thing that's embedded in this is the relationship between ethnicity. And that's another dimension. And I think you can also bring that out in terms of Mm. what's happening in the Horn of Africa, what's happening in parts of of Africa in terms of the ethnic dimensions, etc., around conflict. 
but it's also about power and who controls the resources. And in the case of Sudan, you know, you know, much of the resources in terms of the energy supply or the energy resources were located in the south as well. And you mm-hmm. had this power struggle. And what also happened was, as the internal dynamics in South Sudan started to emerge in terms of creating two Sudan, the internal dynamics of the political dimensions in South Sudan also mm-hmm. started to rear its ugly head because the power struggles within the the, the South uh, Sudan, Sudanese government started to also become quite right. interesting. And so you had the, uh, you know, once John Garand uh, passed away, mm. then of course you started to see the internal weaknesses and the power struggles. Mm. So it's also about the control over the, na- the, the both the national mm. and, 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 and the interests of the state. The one other point I want to make, and I think this is partly because of the way borders are drawn, is that the system in itself is not meant to be peaceful. So the mm. way in which borders are structured, and if you're going back to the looking at some of the historical roots of these, of these conflicts, yes, now you can add climate change to this, climate change as a source of conflict, where people are being corralled uh, because of climate change, okay. and they're getting caught in, for example, in uh, desertification, in other levels of where mm. their livelihoods are at risk. And so uh, with climate change, you also have climate conflicts around access to mm. resources, natural resources. Okay. And this also creates this refugee crisis and displacement of people. And that's another new type of, war, of, of, of conflict or instability, right. a source of instability in Africa, given that Africa is quite vulnerable to climate okay. change and what's happening. So I think the challenge right now is really to ask the question, is the system that was supposed to be, be, be built for peaceful coexistence in terms of the institutional architecture of how a state is constructed and characterized, yeah. those states or the way the international system is built has never been built right. in that way because of the way the borders have been drawn. All right. So I, I don't want to make this too much of an academic exercise because obviously we've got time constraints, but you are speaking to interlocking crises where there's physical war, conflict, then this climate change drought, forcing people to move away from the lands that they know to try to go to higher lands that are more fertile. And as they move, they encroach on other people's territories, which then creates another kind of conflict. Then there are militia and generals in the storyline, and it gets very, very uncomfortable and untidy. But what Sudan has revealed is in a short space of time, uh, 3.4 million people um, or, or the UN says 6.3 million people uh, have been uh, displaced because of the famine. You add to that the numbers because of the conflict. And suddenly Sudan seems to be having an internal uh, humanitarian crisis that exceeds the DRC. And the DRC um, continues to have problems 20 years later, despite elections, despite a semblance of stability in the western frontier, the east remains volatile. Somalia as well uh, has been stateless for the longest time. And despite many attempts at transitional government, it's not getting it right. And you add to that droughts, uh, flooding, terror cells, and um, it's a very, very difficult existence. What can the international community do about this? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the international community, in terms of where they need to be providing the kind of resources, are doing so. Because I think at the end of the day, the challenge is becoming insurmountable. It's actually exceeding what the, the actions can, uh, can be uh, done. And I think we've got to be also clear about which international community we're talking about. If we're talking about non-state actors acting in humanitarian space, I think you can rightly point out the gifts of the givers. And the gifts of the givers is one of those 
those non-state actors that takes on this humanitarian crisis and 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 uses its 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 convening power to be able to get the resources into those very hard uh, spaces in terms of where they need to go. But it comes at a cost as well in terms of how much of of, of diplomacy and shuttle diplomacy and other mm-hmm. levels of diplomacy that needs to be uh, taken into yeah. account. So the international community right now, and I think your point that you raised, Lerato, is fundamental, is that I come back to the, to the, to the issue of the model does not work in terms of how do you create state sovereignty, how do you create stability, because peace and stability is not necessarily goes hand in hand with the fact that if you can create a state because you don't like what you see or you feel mm-hmm. that uh, the, the, the current leadership in power does not represent you, and then you've got elites that come in and say, well, we want to uh, uh, right. uh, uh, challenge that status quo and assert our authority. It doesn't mean that a new government and a new state okay. is going to address the problem. If not, it amplifies the problems. We haven't really addressed the crisis okay. of what is human security. So I think human security remains a serious blight on the international community's ability to provide the kind of assistance because half of these conflicts are also about external factors. Yeah. Okay. So, Nusha, I think we're going to need to do a 2.0 on this one. Uh, but uh, But you are at least pointing to us the reasons why the UN... Uh, other than sending in a peacekeeping mission, uh, tends to have a hands-off approach, uh, is what I'm hearing you say, uh, to really getting themselves involved in conflict resolution because the number of actors at play, the scale of the degradation, the need for humanitarian support when you're seeing an increase in displacement each year and then the compounding variables of weather patterns, drought, um, you know, militancy starts to really complicate the solution. And when people don't know what is the solution, they step aside. It's time for the news. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.